Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. Today, we welcome Sahir Azam, Chief Product Officer at MongoDB. Beginning his career as a sysadmin, Sahir continuously evolved through hyper-growth organizations to reach the executive status he has today. In this episode, we discover how he has bridged product innovation and go-to-market strategy in one of the most disruptive technology companies in history. This is his playbook. edition of the 33 CXOs, we discover the crucial role that the pre-sales organization played in what is regarded as the greatest success story in the history of software sales. When John McMahon reunited the team at BladeLogic, he had a clear vision to create a sales and pre-sales organization that was in absolute unison. The symbiotic and almost telepathic sales rhythm is the benchmark for best practice. The outcome is not only execution excellence, but a shift to a value mindset which transcends any shift in technology. The pre-sales team now take executive positions at some of the fastest, most disruptive technology companies in the world. What we discover is that John McMahon's vision has not only changed how we sell, it's changed what we sell. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. I'm Simon Kutis, and I'm joined by my new co-host, Patrick Harrison. Great to be here. Patrick has been drafted in in place of Oli Kune because of his passion and knowledge for technology. Patrick, welcome. Fantastic to be here. And thanks for having us on the, thanks for coming on the show, Sahir. It's a pleasure to have you. No problem. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Simon, great to meet you. Yeah, it's an absolute honor to here to welcome you to the show today. So here you're currently Chief Product Officer at MongoDB in what has been a truly remarkable and stellar career so far. We're actually going to spend quite a lot of time talking about um, MongoDB, but I actually want you to just, just take us right to the beginning. How did you enter into pre-sales? Yeah, so... Um it's a little bit of an interesting story. So I, at the time, uh, this was probably 2005, 2006, was really a practitioner of technology. So I was working at a you know, web hosting company, um, you know, back at that time in New York City. I was living in New Jersey and you know, doing, the t- doing the typical subway uh, commute. And I remember I got a call while I was walking down the street on my way to work from a recruiter, um, a recruiter who definitely, I think, brought a bunch of people uh, to Blade Logic, uh, Kathy Road. And she had called me, found my contact information online, and said, Listen, would you be interested in you know, a pre sales engineering job at this startup from Boston, you know, Blade Logic? And to be quite honest, I had no idea what pre sales engineering even was, like, not even remotely. You know, I think the thing that initially caught my attention were really two things. One, the fact that she explained that it was a role that was customer facing, had some travel associated with it. And, you know, I definitely was interested in not just sitting behind a computer 100% of the time and, you know, having a little bit more of a very day-to-day um, 
sort of vibe. And then secondarily, frankly, the comp was a lot higher than what I was making as a uh, sysadmin or DevOps engineer, as they call it now. So, you know, it definitely got my attention. And I think there was a little bit of luck in that, to be honest, because as I understand it, and certainly some of the other folks you'll be, you know, having on the show would know this, you know, that were there at Blade Logic prior to me. I think at the time, Blade Logic had sort of made the decision to shift their profile of hiring from sort of career essays and sales engineers into, you know, more of like practitioners that might have had the right soft skills to learn the selling or business side of things. And so I think that's the only reason my profile even caught Kathy's attention. But, um, you know, that call very much changed my life. You know, frankly, I didn't really know exactly where I wanted my career to go at that point. Like I said, I had no idea what the job really was, uh, you know, prior to hearing about it in detail from her. And that started this long uh, trajectory that I've uh, been very fortunate and humbled by. Uh, it has obviously been an incredible trajectory and uh, kind of, I suppose, as an entry point into pre-sales, what an organization to start your journey, right? <laughs> what, what were the early days like? How, how difficult was your transition initially from no experience to kind of getting up to speed um, within a very salesy organization in, in, in Blade Logic? Yeah, honestly, I was so... Uh, green and, you know, moldable, I think in one way, and also just excited about the opportunity that I didn't find the transition particularly, you know, tough or challenging. And a big part of the reason why is because of Damon Miller, you know, Damon was my hiring manager. You know, I remember he came down to a coffee shop near where I live for, you know, when we interviewed, he demoed the product to me and I immediately clicked with the product because I was like, oh, this would make my life so much easier in the current job I had. So there was just an instant sort of appreciation or intuition for like how valuable this product was just when Damon was sitting at a coffee table, giving me a demo uh, during our interview. So I think that was immediate. And then you know, I think just Damon was a really great teacher. And I remember distinctly being in the uh, boss office of Blade Logic doing some mock demo training with Damon at one point, you know, and I'm explaining some feature or another in my demo back to him. And I, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, this, this feature is really neat and blah, blah. I mean, he like stopped me immediately and was like, don't say it's neat. Nobody cares if it's neat. You have to explain <laughs> the value and the reason why it matters. And so yeah. like that little moment, you know, is just one of many examples of just a lot of mentorship from Damon and Tim and others on the team that I think made that transition really easy. And then I just really love being in front of customers and, you know, the whole thrill of a deal and, and how that process worked and really learned a lot during those years. Fantastic. And what, why do you think the decision was made at Blade Logic Sahir to change the experienced sales engineer through to the, the more maybe technical individual um, with the right DNA? Yeah, I definitely think that's a question worth asking some of the you know managers that were there at the time in those sessions. But my sense is that the product's very technical, and you know as you know complex enterprise software. There were sort of two factors. You know, one was the ability to really have credibility in front of like-minded folks in, in the same job. So being able to say, listen, I've walked the walk and, you know, done your job in many ways. And this is how we can apply this technology to making your life easier and making it more efficient. That part of it, the, you know, sort of credibility that came along and then just the technical depth, you know, you know, this was quite a while ago now and, you know, enterprise software is quite complex. So there were, quite a bit of, even though the product was amazing, a lot of customization that needed to happen 
to tweak it to the customer's environment, integrate it into other systems or processes they had. And so we needed to be quite hands-on to be able to really be quick on our feet and a proof of concept to be able to make those tweaks and make those configuration changes work for the customer, but do so in a way that, um, you know, at the same time was ultimately displaying value and getting that technical win. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. From a technology perspective, as you said, it was a very, very complex stack of kind of technologies that the blade logic solution was kind of integrating with. Um, and so that obviously brought a lot of technical uh, challenge, but at the same time, the sales element of the sale was, I can imagine was just as steep as a, a kind of a, a, a learning curve for you. So how did you adjust yourself to be able to keep up with the pace of the sales organization? And what did you have to learn in order to be able to uh, be successful in that role? Yeah, I think the, the things that really, again, it comes down to people ultimately. So I happen to work with some really amazing sales reps, you know, you know, some of the most seasoned reps at Blade Logic, just at the very nature of the fact that I covered the East Coast region and, you know, Boston, New York, um, you know, Ohio were my kind of key areas that I help with. I got a lot of exposure to the, some of the, you know, top experienced reps in the company that had done this. So I learned a lot just in terms of like how they sold and, you know, just sitting you know side by side with them in meetings and deals and talking through it on the drive to the meeting and all that. So it's just a lot of absorption there. The other side was I just sort of had an intellectual curiosity for the process of selling. You know, I really, really, and you know, enjoyed the whole idea of how you control control a deal, how you qualify a deal. I know there's a lot of conversations on the sales side of these podcasts around medic and how that plays as sort of that filter for for where you are in a deal. I relish that stuff. And so, you know, we would sit in the these sales and pre-sales trainings and, you know, whether it's Carlos or other sales leaders or John McMahon kind of walking through that. I just always had a fascination for how that process, either the sales process or the qualification methodologies worked. And that was really something that I hadn't realized at any, you know, sense at the time that I was going to, you know, the Harvard University of sales. (laughs) I I was just like, oh, this is really interesting stuff. This is how sales is done. I had no idea. You know, subsequently, I I began to really realize how special, you know, what was being built there and the processes and the methodologies that were being applied really were. Mm. It's interesting because one of your playbook elements that you that you kind of refer to are is the sales and pre-sales harmony. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think there's. A part of it that's very um, much art, and then there's a part of it I think is that's a little that was very much practiced and more scientific. And on the art side, I think it just comes with a natural chemistry that builds up between a great team, you know, meaning a you know account executive and a sales engineer, where they just get into a vibe where they know the cadence of how to run a demo or a meeting. They know the discovery questions that one person's going to ask versus the other person. And I was fortunate to have that sort of connection and vibe with you know a lot of the um, really strong reps and, you know, in the region that we had at the time and just kind of got that like natural chemistry and working rhythm going with them. So I think, and that also extended, I would say, even up into the RD, the kind of first line manager on the sales side as well. Because sometimes it would be like the RD, the sales engineer, the, you know, account executive all in a room together kind of in an important meeting. And there's just sort of like an interplay there that you just kind of build over time. And so, you know, Dan or 
you know, JP when he was a rep, myself, like these were just some great Anthony Palladino. We kind of just got into a good rhythm and that's the art. And that just kind of builds as you get working with people and know each other's skills and, you know, see things that work and just sort of naturally uh, repeat it. The part that's a bit more scientific was there was just a lot of rigor. You know, we had scripted demos you know, we all were taught meticulously on the kind of four key differentiators of the product, both in terms of how to pitch them, but then what the demo is that goes along and articulates that. And then all the way through how you, you know, prove that, prove that out in a POC or a benchmark. And so basically like it just became, I wouldn't say automatic because obviously there's a, you always have to be quick on your feet and adjust to what's happening in a meeting, but you know, you just know like, okay, you know, the sales app's going to say X, Y, Z, you talk about that value. I'm going to come back to that in 15 minutes later when I'm giving my demo, know how to reference that. Here's the feature, the aha moment that's going to crystallize what he said. And a lot of that was very much documented in practice. You know, and I think that rigor really does make the difference of, you know, kind of sharpening the skills and just, you know, not only practicing in front of customers, but practicing it in front of each other and, you know, with the team. And that really creates this just very powerful delivery of a pitch and the value of the product in a way that if you just take any, you know, sales engineer, you know, and any sales rep in many times, even across the country, you can almost put them together. And because of the rigor side, still make the meeting happen. It may not be as magical as the art part I talked about earlier, but that was really you know, fun because then you could, you know, sometimes I would cover a meeting for another region on back in the days it was WebEx, you know, and they, they knew that they would be getting a certain bar of quality and consistency from the pre-sales team on how to t- talk about the technology and product and vice versa, the same thing for the sales reps. Mm. So, so how important was medic within that kind of process that you're referring to now and, you, and, and having to master and understand the, the elements of medic? I would say that the for the for the pre-sales team generally knowing medic as a you know methodology to help with qualification was really important and that's why we sat in all those different uh, I mean meetings where we learned about it and John would you know walk through it or other the sales VPs would kind of educate the team on how to apply that uh, that filter. Ultimately, obviously, it's the sales management's responsibility, the sales team's responsibility. But what was great about that time at Blade Logic is, I remember the sales leadership especially would really look to the pre-sales engineering leadership, the top pre-sales engineers for their point of view on you know where we are in the process. So like you know, is he a champion or a coach, or is you know, uh, is she really the economic buyer that we're talking to? And like I always felt like we were part of that business discussion, and it wasn't just like okay, go run a demo or go do a POC. You know, we would go do these, you know, deal deal reviews where we would basically write medic on the wall for three hours. And, you know, one of the sales leaders like Carlos or whatnot would basically just be talking us through it, you know, for a particular deal. And I, those were amazing moments, you know, both from what I learned, but also just to really get that clarity and get consensus within the whole team covering the account on what the next step should be. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, sir? That kind of relationships are here. How, how do you think that was fostered was that bred through the sales leadership was that the pre-sales leadership as well or was it a, was it something that evolved at blade logic 
I think it was, it was certainly in many ways established when I was there. Obviously, it scaled. And, you know, at the time, it was probably more, you know, Damon and Marty or Damon and, uh, you know, some of the Dewaker kind of working on it. Obviously, as they hired and built out teams, the same thing sort of flowed down through the organization. But I think it was really just a culture in the sales organization that pre-sales is a partner in the way we sell as opposed to just a resource you use for technical help, yeah. you know? And then, uh, and I think that, that, uh, that culture was very foundational because of the, just how complicated the product was. And, you know, I, I listened to Mark Musselman's, uh, you know, chat with you guys and, you know, he really called out how much, like there was a really mutual respect going on there that, you know, you need both sides of the coin, the technical sellers, the business sellers together to make a really, you know, amazing deal happen. That just, it was many kids, it was just obvious. You know, we all knew it. And so that, that was just kind of baked in. Yeah. Sure. Within the sales organization, obviously the very f- the first two series that we released is the 33 CXOs, which tells mm-hmm. the amazing success of these incredible sales um, execs that, ha- that are now driving the faster technology companies in the world. And I suppose some of the common traits that, we, that we've heard about in those series is the the mindset, the attitude, the winning mentality, coachability, you know, uh, the, the kind of ice criteria of attributes. Was that also present within the pre-sales um, team as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, the rare times when we would like lose a technical win, it, it stunk for sure. Mm. And, you know, the, there are many times that we got the win, but it wasn't just like this straight path where it's, you know, on autopilot, you know, there were multiple POCs that were very complicated, very competitive, where the pre-sales team is, you know, staying up till, you know, one in the morning working on customizations or, you know, practicing and documenting stuff for how we're going to show up, you know, the executives, the outcome of the POC, you know, late at night for prep for the next day. So, you know, it was definitely, you know, we wouldn't have done that if, you know, if we weren't just as passionate or competitive about, you know, competing with Opsware or getting that technology win in an account. I mean, that was far for the course, but that's also what made it really fun. You know, a lot of the relationships of, you know, some of the other folks that you're going to talk to, I mean, I mentioned Dame, Damon or Mike Lupiani or Tim, these are people I consider friends. And a lot of those bonds were built from the trenches of you know, really tricky POCs where we're sitting there at, you know, 11 o'clock at night and, you know, Carlos is driving over snacks for us, you know, to make you know, his support of, you know, how important the work we were doing was. So that was very much in the culture of the, it was one sales team, you know, it felt like the sale pre-sales team and the sales team was very much combined. It didn't, mm. wasn't like this separate part of the org that was disconnected. Mm. It's obviously very difficult for you to compare what pre-sales was like in other organizations, because obviously this was your first taste of the kind of the pre-sales environment. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the standards that were set and a lot of the best practices which were established, because a lot of it was trailblazed, a lot of it was obviously created um, at Blade Logic in terms of that kind of relationship between sales and pre-sales. In the greater kind of picture of pre-sales globally today, how, how much influence do you think Blade Logic may have had in setting those standards globally in terms of what we see as pre-sales today? 
I think the area where, you know, similar to how you talked about the 33, you know, CROs or CXOs that came out the sales side. I mean, there are a lot of pre-sales, you know, engineers that from Blade Logic that have gone on to run very large pre-sales organizations at some of those very tech companies or other companies as well. And I think the piece that's most that I think is probably I would be most uh, you know proud of coming out of that culture and that methodology that we built are one what we just talked about that like you know the technical win the accountability the competitiveness that comes with that you know just sort of the importance of that it's not like we're mailing it in and it's the sales team's job to close the deal and you know all we're doing is just you know being the technical specialist no really like the win is you know we felt it on our shoulders I think that is one important thread of just sort of accountability and culture that I, I think has been replicated at some of the companies. I know I talked to a lot of, you know, ex-colleagues and all that. The other is the rigor on enablement and that methodology, right? And I do think I've seen, you know, many pre-sales teams, you know, post-Blade Logic and that, and sometimes it's successful companies. I'm not trying to say that, that you can't, there aren't other ways to get done, but that rigor was something that was really special. You know, I talked about whether it's the demo scripts and then in like knowing when the rep's going to say what and how knowing the four key differentiators to a point where it's almost like you could talk to anyone in the company and they know exactly how to articulate the value. That rigor, I think, is something that uh, I'm certain has been brought forth in some of the subsequent companies people have been involved with. But I always look back and say, we just had that playbook nailed, you know, and I, that's hard to hard to replicate. Yeah, fantastic. And for, for more junior individuals watching this to here um, who maybe have an opportunity to, to move into pre-sales or a more slightly more commercial or customer-facing role, um, what would your kind of key takeaways be? Should it be character traits or a competitive edge? Or what, what do you think are the essential ingredients for someone to, to maybe follow in your footsteps? I think the, if I look at, you know, sort of, I think what, um, you know, made me successful in those areas, you know, <laughs> humbly speaking, or that I was never going to be the most technical person in the room. You know, we'd like, we had engineers or post sales, uh, you know, implementation specialists that were, you know, way more, writing a lot more code that was production ready, like really deeply technical. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like, you know, the business acumen of some of the folks that we've had on this call in just terms of being amazing business minds and sales leaders. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, w I didn't see myself as really having all of those skills, but what I was lucky in Tim Fessenden, who you'll speak to, um, you know, sort of really helped with this as a mentor was clarified the fact that there's an actual skill in being able to translate technology in business fluidly back and forth. And, you know, that's a very generic statement, but that applies to well, later in my career, what I'm doing now on the, on the product side of things, but that's an essential skill for pre-sales engineers. Like the top pre-sales engineers, in my opinion, are ones that understand the business and the sales, where we are in a sales process and know the, the way deals work and, and, you know, how they flow, but then also know exactly where the technology fits into that process and how to be deeply technical to make sure we get that win. And that's a unique skill set. So I think fostering that and, and recognizing that and like leaning into that and saying like, okay, you don't need to be the, you know, a junior sales rep tagging along. They're very different jobs. And at the same time, 
your job is not to go be the engineer that's you know necessarily building the product either. That there's this unique skill set that combines those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, the earlier I think that's recognized, and I was lucky that you know I had some folks that kind of called that out in me. Um, I think that that's a big part of the, the success. Fantastic. Uh, I suppose um, you know the, the the first two series are very much about kind of John McMahon's legacy. Um, how, how influential was he on the pre-sales team? I think he was very influential in terms of what the expectation was, and also he reinforced to his sales leaders that you know, the the pre-sales engineers are part of that team that's driving the deal. So, you know, when a sales VP wants to really gut check his, you know, his or her forecast and calls the pre-sales engineering manager for the region and says like, Hey, what's your take on this? Is this really a Q2 deal? How well is it qualified? That started from the top. You know, you would like the relationship that John had with the pre-sales leaders and, you know, being able to, you know, sort of show that at the very top flowed all the way down through the organization. So I think that is definitely uh, one area for sure. The other is just the accountability. Like ultimately there's a time when, you know, this is a, uh, it feels a little weird now that these like heavyweight, two week long, heavily customized proof of concepts or benchmarks. I mean, the importance of that and the fact that that accountability to get that technical win was on the pre-sales team, you know, like we felt accountable to it because of John, you know, ultimately. And, you know, he set that direction. Now, the other side of that coin was he would, the part of the reason that that was treated with such importance was he reinforced to the sales organization that we're not going into a benchmark or a POC unless the deal's fully qualified, the success criteria is completely baked in our favor. And so, you know, there was a lot of accountability on the sales organization that you're not going to take your pre-sales team and put them into a bad situation, hoping to make a miracle happen out of a technical validation event. And that was something that came very much from, you know, from, I remember John and the other sales VPs and, and the like uh, at that time. That's actually um, one of your playbook elements, which is kind of control the decision criteria. That's actually something that's yeah. very, very key. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that, Sahir? Why is that important? Yeah, so, you know, we, we were in a market where there was really only one major competitor. So most deals were Opsware versus BladeLogic, right? And yes, there were some other players that were more narrow in certain subset of functionality, but we were always trying to broaden the criteria because, you know, what BladeLogic did and what Opsware did was really combine, you know, silos of functionality combined with new functionality that didn't exist into one platform or one product that had never really existed before. And so from a success criteria standpoint, if we're going into a deal and a customer only cares about patch management, like one narrow, I'm just choosing something, there are probably 10 tools that can do the job. But if we can broaden that to include provisioning, configuration management, compliance, all these sort of other things, in and explain and demo and you know through discovery and all of that drive those requirements in we knew that we were doing two things we were excluding the majority of you know the competition because that were more point tools and we were kind of narrowing the criteria such that ideally it would only be blade logic that could fulfill it but many times that first filtering really only left us and opsware on the table because we were the broadest products in the market 
So that was kind of the first level of like, you know, how early in the sales process and discovery and scope, we're sort of really understanding the pain and we knew all the discovery questions to peel out those requirements. And then we would document them. The second and more, you know, uh, nuanced is, okay, we knew what our strengths were versus Opsware's weaknesses and vice versa. And so we were always trying to make sure our differentiators were baked in as tier one critical criteria in the customer's mind and, you know, really uh, crucial to how they measured the outcome of which technology they would choose. And that, again, comes to rigor. It was documented. We had a template. You would customize that template. We would send that to the customer. And, you know, if you're a customer, they're not the experts in, you know, data center automation. So they're going to look for a template from us because it makes their job much easier because they get all everything they need to be caring about 80% there, and then they can customize it. And so we knew that if we were going to a deal and it wasn't our criteria template and customized to that deal, that somebody else was driving and had that account control. And, you know, we'd see it. Sometimes it wouldn't be us, right? And we'd see an Opsware doc. It wouldn't say Opsware, but we knew it was an Opsware doc. And that's where the, I think the discipline on the sales side really came in. You know, I remember multiple times where we would like pull the red, you know, cord of just saying like, you know, customer expects us to come on site for a POC in a week or two, you know, we get in front of the EB to qualify that this is the criteria that's the same between two vendors or whatnot. And either, you know, they don't commit to that or the criteria we don't feel good about our ability to prove out. And we just hit the, you know, the the red button of we're not going to participate. And that's a scary thing, especially if you're the account manager, right? Your quote is tied largely to you know, a handful of deals and suddenly your sales, you know, manager or your VP are saying, we're not going into that deal. We're not going to do this POC because we're, it's not baked in our favor. It's not fully there yet. You know, that was a, an amazing trick in the playbook. Like it would create a little bit of drama sometimes because then our champions would be like, what are you doing? You know, you can't, you can't pull out. I've got skin in the game. You know, I'm recommendably logical. We'd say like, well, we're not willing to participate. You know, we, we think you're missing some things that we heard in discovery that were important to you that aren't in the criteria. And, you know, we don't have validation from, you know, ultimately the economic buyer that, you know, if we meet these criteria better than the competition, we're measured the same way that, you know, we will get the deal. And we took that very seriously. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that we knew when we were going into a POC as a pre-sales team, like, okay, this is going to be a piece of cake. We're going or, you know, we're going to walk out of this win or we knew, okay, here are the areas they're, there's some things in here that we don't do perfectly that we're going to have to keep our eyes on, do a lot of preparation on well in advance of, you know, installing the software. And yeah, of course there were always some unknowns that came up technology, but like we had a good sense of how risky it was before going in. And it was because of that rigor on the decision criteria. You just kind of referenced to the fact that the walk away was part of the playbook, right? To what detail is that, documented in terms of what you should be doing, what the, you know, what steps you should be doing, the roles of the various party, how detailed is it? Or was it the walk away, something we do kind of go work it out and learn from experience? So it would, it's not, I wouldn't say if I'm going from memory here, that the walk away was like a line item in a playbook. It was more that the right steps you need in the process from discovery all the way to close 
were very well documented and medic was used rigorously as a qualification framework. So you knew where you really were along that journey. So that if we're getting, you know, right before a POC and we don't have criteria baked in our favor, we don't have alignment with the economic buyer, we know, okay, we got, we either need to push our champion to get us there. And, and, you know, the walkaway was just a, extreme version of saying, we're not going to spend our dollars and our time and our resources, meaning our pre-sales engineers precious time on a POC for four or five days, because we can go do that somewhere else. And that was based on the fact that the process had rigor, that the qualification methodology, you know, was used and applied rigorously that allowed us to know when we needed to, you know, pull that card out and whether it be walk away or just go have a tough conversation and, you know, slow things down to ultimately win the deal at the end. Mm. And would that walk away often result in the customer coming back to you or would it often result in the end of the process? No, almost always. Because, you know, remember, this is like mid-process at this point where this is happening. So we've already had dozens of discovery meetings in some cases. We've started documenting the criteria. We're getting prepared for a POC. And, you know, ultimately we're, you know, sales leadership's going to make a call about whether we're going to go with this POC or benchmark or not. And if they didn't feel good about the fact that, you know, we had alignment with the economic buyer and, you know, the pre-sales team didn't feel good about the criteria being locked in our favor, you know, they wouldn't go put their resources on site because, and that, you know, was having a, a benchmark that didn't go well because of some surprise or something else happened in the deal later on, you know, things happen. But going into a POC and failing and losing or the deal doesn't happen because we didn't do our you know, jobs on discovery or in scope to lock that criteria down or get high enough and really truly, you know, test our champion with the economic buyer before that benchmark that was taken very, very seriously, um, you know, in the organization. And so that was really the, the thing that made it work. And most of the time it worked completely fine, but there were those times that, you know, we didn't have all those check boxes that we needed to feel comfortable. And that's when the walkaway would come into place. And it's a great test because if the customer is freaking out and kind of angry, like, why are you walking away? I got skin in this game. Great. We've got a, we've got somebody who really wants us and is selling on our behalf. Okay. You know, so it was used as a test as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And um, so you spent just over two years with BladeLogic before the BMC acquisitions here. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. I think it was, we went public about a year in our, if I remember correctly, I think I bought about a year later, something roughly like that. Sure. And you, you had to actually joined after John McMahon had come on board to lead the sales and yeah. it was already in quite a high growth mode at that point. Yes, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, and <laughs> I remember meeting John on my first trip to the office and, you know, he's got that St that uh, direct stare that he's famous for. And I think he might've asked Damon something like, where did you hire this high school kid from? Does he work here? I, I would look always so green with such a ridiculous haircut at that time. <laughs> Just one of my early McMahon memories. <laughs> Fantastic. And then transitioning to, to BMC, um, mm -hmm. how, how did you find that, that move from the startup into the, the larger corporate? I, I think you'll probably have heard this from others, but in the initial, you know, post-acquisition, I remember that it was culture shock, to be quite honest. You know, we had this like tight team, rigorous, high energy sort of startup mentality. And, you know, BMC was a 
just a very established company that was, you know, very, had a very comfortable mainframe run rate business and certainly didn't at the time operate with the same level of sales rigor and process the way we were accustomed to. And so I think there was a lot of like, wow, this is never going to work. Like, all right, we got to figure out, you know, (laughs) what what we all do next over time and all that in the initial sort of post-acquisition phase. And then of course, you know, John took on the distributed systems sales organization. You know, Dave was the president of the distributed systems business. And then it was like amazing, right? Because a lot of the stuff that we had, you know, sort of built at Blade Logic in terms of sales execution got applied in a much more broad-based way in an organization that had more resources, more scale, you know, a bigger global footprint, bigger, you know, broader technology stack to sell to. And so, honestly, um, I, I would say it was a learning moment, right? Because I thought like, oh, I can never, you know, see how this is going to work. And this big, you know, company from Houston is buying this, you know, <laughs> really aggressive East Coast startup. But to be honest, like, I really enjoyed the the few years I was at BMC. I learned a lot there around how to sell strategic portfolios as opposed to just, you know, a particular technology at a very deeply technical level. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to, you know, have really strong relationships that I built at BMC with the CTO and the you know, folks in the CTO's office there. So like, I felt like, you know, I, I really had, um, you know, great visibility in terms of like where the strategy and the technical roadmap of the product was going and it had the ability to sort of contribute to that. And it allowed me to move from uh, pre-sales into an overlay sales role as well. So it got me a little bit closer to, you know, to the business in that sense. And, you know, having a quota and working more on the deal side of things and the selling side of things and purely the technical execution. So, yeah, they they were really, um, you know, great growth years, uh, you know, for the two, three years after the acquisition. Yeah. And obviously, I think we've covered in the the sales series the... um you know, the, the change in leadership through that acquisition and the, the change in sales culture. Um, how, how was it really for you, you guys as the pre-sales team? Was it, were you brought on the same journey or was it, was it slightly different from the start? Uh, no, I think we were brought on the same journey. Now, obviously the difference I would say on the pre-sales side is, you know, it was more balanced in terms of probably non-blade logic BMCers that were, you know, hired in or were there prior or, you know, blade logic SAs or uh, AEs as we used to call them and the like, because the portfolio was much more broad. So it's not like, you know, we may have been the the team that covered the automation technologies within the portfolio, but there was a whole different pre-sales, you know, set of skills and knowledge required for service management or, you know, on the operational management side. And so versus on the sales side, the, you know, a single account manager carried the whole portfolio on the distributed system side of things. So, you know, we had to work, you know, more cohesively with the technical experts and essays they had there. Now, because the sales process that Blade Logic had, you know, run was sort of brought in and adjusted and scaled up, and you know, at BMC, a lot of how the pre-sales, you know, team supported that process. Ultimately, you know, we brought in. I would feel like to in you know the BMC world for sure. So I think that part of it is the same. But just naturally, you need domain experts from areas that you know we didn't bring to the table because you need to know the different products that they had in the portfolio. Mm. Yeah, sure. And um, just going back to one of your earlier points, you mentioned um, the transition from to BMC really allowed you to 
maybe become more solution driven and sell a wider product set. Um, For maybe sales engineers watching this, what do you see the the key skills for achieving that more solution driven sell as being, or how can people go through that transition? Yeah, I think the, when you have a broader portfolio oriented sell, it doesn't alleviate the need to have the detail or still have that rigor in a product by product sales that still needs to be there. But the layer above the, you know, on the marketing side, it's like solutions marketing, but you know, um, as it relates to selling, what it really is about is I think you lean more heavily on your holistic differentiators as opposed to your hardcore technical differentiators. Because what you're trying to do is ultimately align to the customer's strategy and have that sort of vision alignment or vision match such that only your portfolio and your company's strategy can fit the bill as opposed to just having the best widget you know, in any particular area. Because obviously at a company like BMC or another large software companies, it's, you're never going to have the best product in every single category in the portfolio. That's close to impossible. You know, obviously you have to be strong in very, very important areas. So yep. therefore, and it's just too complicated to go in. You can't have, you know, imagine this, we were talking about decision criteria. If you have 15 products, 16 products, whatever it is in your portfolio, are you going to drop a book on the you know table of this is all the decision criteria? It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So you have to, up level it a bit and talk about the holistic value of the, of the strategy of the company and how the pieces fit together. And in the case of BMC, it was, you know, this idea of it being an agnostic management layer, right? That was independent of any underlying operating system vendor, hardware vendor, and all of that. And then eventually that evolved to being like hybrid cloud management and things of that nature. So that's like a, it's not about blade logic only or about, you know, the operations management tools or whatnot. It's a holistic company portfolio level differentiator. So a lot of the same stuff applies. You have to bake that in, make those things important to the customer, but it's more broad based, perhaps, um, you know, has more business elements to it, uh, like avoiding vendor lock-in and, you know, remaining flexible and, and those things as opposed to just hardcore feature function validation. So I think that's the thing that really I learned there that, it's, mm. it's a fun way to sell. Mm. I think you're obviously making quite an interesting point here, so here because, you know, in, in the kind of greater scope of what we're discussing here today, the pre-sales function is obviously a, a kind of a technical, in inverted commas, function, but ultimately it's a business value function. Do you think that the fact that you have been able to take a much more, as you, as you put it, holistic business value oriented discussion has also enabled you to continue to kind of scale your career kind of from a personal perspective, because you're almost vendor, you're almost technology agnostic yourself in, in the fact that you can obviously adapt and evolve and continue to, to grow. Uh, yeah. And actually you, you made me think of another thing from the BMS blade logic days that I, thought was really special, which was, you know, we really put a lot of rigor in the business case development. And so Vic Vaishnavi, who ran product marketing um, for Blade Logic, and, you know, in many ways, I like learned a ton from him and, you know, kind of built a lot of that methodology up where I forget what we called it, but it's basically a business value assessment where we knew exactly how to go build the financial case that would hold up to, you know, scrutiny uh, you know, when making a purchase. And that actually got even refined and, and made even more, much more rigorous at BMC because 
that time was really the financial crisis, you know, was, was going yeah. on in the thick of it. And so I remember that we used to call it the CFO ready business case. Like, so we taught the sales organization and, you know, the more senior pre-sales leaders, we had a whole team dedicated ultimately to this. And so on how to quantify business value in a way that ultimately, if it goes all the way up to a CFO, they're going to be able to understand that in hard dollar terms so that when they're making the trade-off between, you know, repaving the parking lot or buying a piece of technology, they know how to evaluate the outcome they're going to get. So that piece of it, I don't know if we we didn't touch upon it earlier, was as much a part of the playbook. And and there was a lot of invention there at the Blaze Logic side. Like we didn't have this, you know, we had to invent it. Vic led that effort. You know, we fine-tuned it in the field, scaled it up at DMC. But that also, at a personal level, just built up my own business financial acumen around how to figure out what is, you know, hard dollar savings, what are softer elements and, you know, which are most important, how to quantify that and, you know, compare it to what the alternatives are. And so that was an important part of the, the skill set that got built up. It's not just articulating value in a subjective way, but also objectively documenting that business value in financial terms. And that creates the whole package. And especially at a strategic sale, <clears throat> at a large scale deal at, at a single product company or a p- portfolio play, that's a huge portion. If you're spending tens of millions of dollars, you know, the economic case is absolutely one of the key decision factors. So that has to be done in a way that is believable and rigorous. And I remember the mantra was the customer needs to feel like it's their business case. We're just giving them the tools of how to build it and the expertise of how to build it. And so that I learned a ton there. And that actually has played out to be really important as a transition later in my career into product roles as well, you know, because you think about pricing, you know, pricing is ultimately about how does this fit into an overall total cost of ownership and business case for the customer? And, you know, of course, how does that play with market comparisons and all that? So I didn't know it at the time, but those essential elements that we were using in a selling context became real, um, you know, skills that I was able to leverage later. Amazing. Have you, Shahir, uh, have you actually been in a more commercial role than pre-sales? Have you ever uh, dabbled in the actual pure sales? Or So at BMC for a couple of years, I was a sales overlay. So effectively what John had done when uh, he took on sales at BMC was really, there were just way too many specialists for way too many products. It wasn't really accountable, clear who was accountable for the account and the revenue coming out of it at the end of the day. So John went to really more of a single account manager that carried the whole portfolio model. And then over time, layered in specialists, not for every product, but for the major areas of the portfolio. And there were kind of three key areas. And so he created a new kind of automation specialist sales role. And I took on that role and I was one of the first people in that role. Mm. And um, I love that job because it was like, uh, it got me more into a commercial role to your point. And at the same time, like I, I felt like I had a dotted line into product management and into the CTO's office on the bleeding edge of what the technologies we were building at BMC were. So I still wanted to keep one foot in the, in the technical vision camp. It's not as hands-on. I still want to, you know, make sure I didn't lose that portion of my, sort of, you know, exercising that muscle, so to speak. And so that job gave me best of both worlds. I got to work more closely with sales leadership, which I love, learn more about how to manage, you know, a forecast, how to, 
you know, uh, think about scale across the whole region as opposed to just like the deals I worked on as an SA, but at the same time, keep one foot in the door on the technical side because of the specialization angle. Mm, right. So I think that was the closest thing to carrying a bag and, and being an account manager that I had. And then, you know, I would say in my product roles, and this is something I really value when we hire product managers, I, I'm, I would say I'm a more go-to-market or commercially-minded product leader. You know, there, there are product leaders that tend to be very much inbound, focused on the you know, engineering execution of the roadmap, um, which is crucially important. I'm not trying to say it isn't. That's, a, that's a, like a really important foundation. But I relish the go-to-market strategy and the business side of product as much. And, and so I think, I think of myself as a commercial leader as much of a, as a technical leader in that sense now. Yeah. So, so July 2011, you made your way to Dynamic Ops as the Global Director of Cloud Technology. Why did you choose to leave BMC and why did you choose to join Dynamic Ops at that time? Yeah, I think um, I definitely had in a desire to go back to a smaller company, you know, classic, you know, I, I was still early in my career, more impact, take more risk, you know, kind of situation. And then secondarily, there, there were two sales leaders who I worked super closely with, Carlos and JP, that were also considering going. And so, I mean, they were some of the people I learned the most from, enjoyed working with the most. And so the idea of going and, you know, really having an impact at a startup and designing these processes for, you know, and having that as a team was very attractive to me, you know, to be able to just kind of take all that learning that we discovered and, and, and really go do that at a much smaller company and, and, you know, see what we could do in terms of scaling it was, was really the main driver for me. And then it was obviously acquired by VMware um, a few years later, 2012, yeah. and you stayed on at VMware. Why did you stay on? Yeah, so I will say the, we got acquired, and I don't think I'd be over my skis if I was saying I was speaking for Carlos and JP as well. Like, we got acquired way too early was our, you know, was our, we had just gotten there a year. We were starting to see the fruits of our labor in terms of refactoring the sales organization, the pre-sales team, hiring up all that type of stuff, focusing it on, you know, the use cases that we really thought were uh, strong for the, for the technology. And then, you know, VMware, I think it was their second or third attempt at trying to acquire the company was successful. And so I had an initial reaction, maybe not as, I was a little more mature at the time, so maybe not as <laughs> emotional as it was when we got acquired by BMC. But, uh, you know, I was like, oh, I just came back to the startup to do the startup thing, and now I'm at a big company again. And so I was initially kind of negative on it, to be honest. And, I, and you now it was intellectually interesting because I was involved in the deal process, which was interesting. So I got to see how the you know, VMware team ran its diligence process. Obviously, I was one of the you know, people they, they spend a lot of time with learning about the tech and the company. So that was like intellectually interesting. And, um, but I didn't ultimately think that, you know, an acquisition was what we wanted at the time. Yeah. But again, a learning moment, it turned out to be, uh, you know, a really good thing for me, I think, professionally and personally, because, it, you know, I really built a connection early on with the general manager at VMware who drove that acquisition, Ramin Sayer. And, you know, as he and I were talking about, like, what my role would be at VMware and, you know, ultimately what my career aspiration would be and those types of things, it became evident that there was, like, an opportunity for me to get out to Silicon Valley, you know, move out west, which is something that I was potentially interested in. Um, you know, Ramin and the 
the VMware team needed this acquisition to be successful, as well as at the time, the management tools portfolio, which is kind of the business unit we sat in at VMware, was relatively small compared to the main business, the core of hypervisor business at VMware. So I said, like, listen, I can help you build an evangelist function or effectively a sales overlay in, in many sense, but just sitting in the business unit that helps drive this technology into the sales organization by you know, helping in key deals, enabling sales, you know, building that connection to the field, which she needed to really scale this acquisition, integrate it. And conversely, I had an interest in moving into product. And so I was like, listen, if I move to California, will you give me the opportunity to, you know, cut my teeth a little bit uh, at the same time on product management? And so that was ultimately we designed and I was very fortunate that he was able to kind of carve out a bit of a special role to me, for me, to be quite honest, um, to make that happen. And so that transition from, you know, pre-sales and, you know, in the pre-sales content context, a lot of selling and even product marketing with messaging and some of the business case development stuff, but then to go into product management was, was definitely a kind of an important moment what, or pivot point in my career. What was it that pulled you? What is it about product management that really kind of attracted you? Uh, so it was two things. One, Tim Fessenden had made the change from, you know, pre-sales to product and, you know, we're close and, you know, and ultimately, you know, I'm ambitious. I wanted to move up in an organization and, you know, I recognize that product leadership combined business and technical to an even more strategic level than, you know, perhaps even pre-sales engineering did in some ways. And I felt like, I always worked very closely with the product management teams, the product marketing teams at any of the companies that I was at. And so I really respected what they did and thought the job was, you know, interesting. So there was a, and so I basically said, okay, if I think I have strong abilities to connect technology and business, that's ultimately what I want to you know, cultivate more of the job that can have the most impact in an organization strategically that leverages that combination of skills and many tech companies is product management. And so I wanted to move in that. And I also knew that if I wanted to move into a general management or someday, you know, more seniors leadership role in an organization, product is a good path to get there. And so that was really the, the kind of driver. And, I, and it was a very purposeful sort of, you know, transition. And I credit that not, that certainly wasn't, I didn't come up with it. It was largely due to some of the conversation with Tim and others that had made similar transitions into product that I had talked to and how they like the role and, and certainly what I've seen in the industry, product leaders, you know, and how their careers could really shape up if they were strong at that job. Mm. Fantastic. And um, after around a two and a half year period after the acquisition, so in January, 2015, um, you, uh, you made the jump to Sumo Logic and I guess joined a lot of the, uh, the Blade Logic guys again there, right? Yeah, that was another one of those, like, could never have predicted that kind of uh, ability to come work with some of the same people I did at Blade Logic earlier in my career. But really, it was driven by the fact, you know, I said earlier on the transition to dynamic, dynamic ops, same thing to Sumo, it's about the people. You know, a big reason that I stuck around VMware was because of Ramin and this role he created for me. And I loved working for him. I learned a ton from him. Yeah. So when he was going to take on uh, the CEO role at Sumo Logic, like the ability to work for him, continue working for him, plus you know re reunite with some uh, some old friends from the Play yeah. Logic days and take on more of a senior product role at the same time was yeah. definitely attractive. Because similar to you know how I felt at BMC, I, I mean VMware was an amazing 
is an amazing company. They've done really well continually. And I really enjoyed working there. Um, at the same time, I felt like it was too early in my career to be at such an established organization and not taking the risk of going and, you know, to an earlier stage company, to be honest. And so, again, I learned a lot there, again, in an even more strategic portfolio that had VMware, a bleeding edge of what was going on in some segments of the market. So I love that, that company. But at the same time, I felt like, okay, this is a kind of job that maybe later in my career might be interesting, but I feel like I'm leaving something on the table if I don't take some risks. And so, the combination of a mentor, a CEO, bigger product role, taking some more risk, getting into the startup world again, those were the drivers for me. Mm. And for, for people maybe considering a, a similar path or a similar change, is there a big difference in product management between an organization the size of VMware and a, a startup such as Sumo Logic was in 2015? I think the fundamental responsibility of the role is not that different. I think the, you know, there are some things around the edges, like, you know, at VMware, for example, pricing and packaging was part of the product marketing function, which is obviously like a peer function, sister function to product management versus at, you know, MongoDB or at, at um, Sumo Logic, you know, pricing is part of the product managers or product management organizations responsibilities. So there's always some, you know, nuances or, or, you know, where you slice the responsibilities could be slightly different, but ultimately it's about, you know, having accountability for building the right thing, you know, um, you know, in many ways, you know, the engineering organization in a tech company is the most expensive and valuable resource. And, it's the product management teams to determine how that resource is applied and make sure that the company gets its return on investment in terms of either feature capability, differentiation, new product launches um, from that investment. And, you know, again, that requires business and it requires technical understanding to be able to one, build credibility with the engineering team that, you know, when recommending a roadmap or a backlog of items to build that it's the right thing, you know, because ultimately it's a job that's through influence, not through uh, authority. Yeah. And then secondarily being able to get the rest of the organization to take that to market, whether it be the product marketing organization, the sales organization, pre-sales, all these different functions. And so that core of being kind of the, being able to get all those functions working on behalf of what the strategy of the company is, is ultimately what I think the most important thing product management does is, and that's the same done right in any tech company. Great. So <clears throat> May, 2016, you then made another step, obviously entering into the world of MongoDB and you joined as the uh, as vice president of cloud product and GTM. So that's go to market, right? Yeah. So um, why did you take that step? So, I was not looking at all. <laughs> I mean, Sumo was going really well. I enjoyed that job and love the technology and really interesting work. But um, I was, you know, I had seen, seen that Dave had come on to, you know, MongoDB. I certainly knew of MongoDB as a sort of like open source, NoSQL database phenomenon, you know, probably as much as anyone in tech at that point. Um, and, you know, I certainly respected a lot of the sales leaders that Carlos had been hiring as he, after he came on as CRO. And so, you know, at various points, uh, you know, I would get, you know, some nudges or calls about, hey, why don't you come over here? We're getting the band back together kind of thing a little bit. <laughs> Again? <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and listen, that. that was a positive thing, just to be clear. But at the same time, it wasn't obvious to me, like, why I would just go just because, you know, 
they're great people. That's a hugely important factor, as I've mentioned, but it's not the only factor. And I was certainly, you know, loving working for, you know, the head of product at Sumo Logic, Bruno and Ramin and CEO there. So it wasn't really, honestly, at the surface, very interesting in the beginning. But then what really became a change that was there was a decision at the executive and board level of the company at Mongo to really shift and expand the strategy towards being a cloud company and delivering a cloud database service as opposed to just shipping open source and enterprise software. And I had really spent my time at VMware and at Sumo like really learning about SaaS businesses and like you know, trying to soak in and you know do as much as I can on, on that kind of a business model. And so they at the time were looking for two roles. They were looking for a VP of product management um, to sort of build the roadmap for this new cloud product uh, that they were building at the time and was, you know, hadn't been launched. And then they were looking for a VP of go-to-market, which frankly was a little bit more of a nebulous role, but would, you know, really work with the CRO and the marketing organization and CMO to think about what's different about how to sell this product and ultimately be sort of like a, accountable for the number, but through sales and marketing for, for cloud. And, I remember in the discussions, I was like, listen, both of those roles are interesting roles, but I, you know, I think that none of them are interesting enough on my own to, on their own to, to jump ship from a company that was going well for me at the time at Sumo Logic. And so I said, listen, if you could combine the responsibility of those roles into a single role, that's more of like a GM-ish kind of role that had the, you know, the product roadmap and product development responsibility for, you know, what we build, but also had the go-to-market strategy, you know, aspect that that would suddenly be a, you know, three, four, five-year career jump for me, potentially. And that combined with the fact that I knew if MongoDB could pull off this transition to being a cloud company, that would be like, you know, have really big impact in both the market and for the company. And, you know, I gave it a probably 5% shot of that actually happening in terms of them combining those roles. But ultimately, that's what happened. And that led to this sort of, you know, role that had both go-to-market responsibility and ownership as well as the product responsibility for this Atlas product that they were launching, which is this cloud pivot for the company in many ways. And so that was, I just couldn't turn down that opportunity. That was a once in a, you know, once in a blue moon, once in a lifetime type of uh, confluence of things, you know, massive open source phenomenon, great leadership that I respected and trusted combined with the type of role that, um, you know, I really felt would be, you know, a career making role for me. So that's why I took it. So, so here, take us to that moment. So you enter a new business, you know, it's a, it's a relatively new technology. I say new technology, but you understand what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. What's your day one approach to getting yourself to, to kind of establish yourself within that business? What, what are your kind of initial objective? What's your mindset? What are you thinking about? Yeah. So the first thing was I needed to learn the technology. And so I was fortunate that at Sumo Logic, I had, you know, it's a data oriented company. It's a it's not a database in the same sense Mongo, yeah. uh, MongoDB is by any means, but I understood cloud data architecture as a function of managing platform, you know, product management at, uh, 
at Sumo. So there was some domain knowledge, but I didn't know anything about databases. And I certainly didn't have any recognition for how nuanced that technology space was. And my boss was the founder and CTO of the company. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I needed to really learn the technology and build credibility with the technical leadership. You know? And so when I say technical leadership, not only the CTO, but you know, my peers. So there were, you know, my peer, Kayla Nelson, who runs, you know, engineering for cloud and on the Dan Passat on the server side, they were longstanding, you know, sort of foundational leaders at the company that had been there a long time. And so I needed to really just learn the technology, build credibility with them, um, that I could be a product leader that really, you know, they believed in terms of setting the roadmap direction and at the same time looked out for the fact that their teams and their time and valuable resources were being spent on the right things and building the right things. And so that was and that's not different from any product leadership role, anyone coming in, but that is crucial. That's like building block number one. The second was, um, you know, I was fortunate that I had, you know, a working relationship, personal relationship with Carlo. So, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to build the credibility with him in that sense because we worked together. But what I needed to build out was, okay, I got to understand how the go-to-market and sales organization works here. And I got to figure out what needs to change to become a cloud company. And the answer was a lot needed to change. And so the second thing was then figuring out, you know, my first assignment, so to speak, um, from, from, the, from Dave and Elliot was go figure out like what the go-to-market strategy and needs to look like for this product and then roll up basically a, an ask of investment that would ultimately go to the board in terms of people or program dollars and resources to make this happen. And so what I did is um, with the team is we went and spoke to each of the functional leaders in the organization and worked on what they would need. And I had the knowledge from Sumo and others of like what I thought we needed to do in terms of profile or skill set for to be a cloud company. That combined with what the, you know, the functional leaders knew they needed to scale and add a second product line to their, you know, to their role. And we came up with basically an investment ask combined with a channel go-to-market strategy. Like how would we actually build this go-to-market for this cloud product? And ultimately presented that to the board. And, you know, that was, you know, a couple month process to kind of think to, to build that up. And I distinctly remember that was like, the starting point by which we started executing, which has now become a really knock on wood successful business, you know, and that was the, the first thing, those two things. You say we, who are you working alongside to kind of uh, establish that, that go to market? Yeah. So it was definitely uh, Carlos, definitely Elliot on uh, the CTO and then Dave as CEO. And, you know, the, the reason that was so important is, you know, if you rewind five years ago at MongoDB, the majority of the monetization of the company came from direct enterprise selling, which I knew very well, um, selling to global 2000 large businesses. We had sort of an inside sales team that was trying to sell a similar or the same product. And even though there was a lot of MongoDB all over the place in the lower ends of the market, the product market fit for our enterprise technology, aptly named, didn't really fit the mid-market or SMB very well. And so with the cloud product, we felt like we had a technology that not only was a fit for the enterprise, but allowed the company to distribute much more broadly in the mid-market and SMB. And so therefore we needed to refactor and change the strategy of inside sales to shift from you know, software sales engine to a cloud sales engine. 
and scale that up. And then secondarily, like build a self-service business, which is a completely different business model. It's almost more like B2C consumer and much more marketing led and product led than it is sales led in terms of revenue acquisition. And so though, when I talk about that channel or go to market strategy, that's really a big portion of what the early years at Mongo were, were, okay, let's build this foundation for a self-service business. Let's work with, you know, Sean Andrews and uh, the sales leadership team to, you know, really pivot the inside sales team to selling cloud only. And then over time, get the enterprise sales organization as well to start leading with cloud as the, the main offering as opposed to the enterprise software. But knowing that in the enterprise, it's a customer's choice. There are many on-prem deals, as many as there are a cloud. And so, you know, we wanted to have two, two sort of product lines we could position there. Mm. And so, you know, we, we basically, it was, you know, that was the strategy. We laid out basically a phasing and investment level and, and a diversification of that distribution strategy in that first uh, Atlas kind of board meeting, I remember. And then we iterated on it course, you know, we couldn't have guessed exactly everything. So we constantly iterated and we had a lot of management attention and it was the leadership team across the board that was, that was driving that. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. And um, as your career has progressed with, uh, with MongoDB, so here, have you, you've now moved into a product chief of product for the, the entire portfolio of, of technology? Yeah. And, you know, I think of the first few years as being the cloud guy running around and helping the organization become a cloud company, whether that be running sales enablement training for two days, you know, with the product, one of the product managers was just a huge, uh, you know, talent on that front, whether it was, you know, working on pricing, working on, you know, how CSM or sales or comp models needed to work, just doing everything we can to kind of learn and build that up. And then, you know, later as Atlas became a mainstream product line and the rest of the organization, you know, was basically driving the, the scale of that, um, my role expanded to be more, you know, covering the product and go to market for the whole business in, the, in that sense. And so, um, although the transition to cloud is still very, very important and continuing at MongoDB, uh, you know, it's really that cohesion of our hybrid on-prem business, how that feeds the cloud over time. And we've brought in the portfolio a lot from just the database to a bunch of other products in the last uh, couple of years. And so that's where I spend most of my time. But my job is, you know, I think about those early days and what my average day looks like now compared to 2016 when I joined. It's like, it's a very different scale of company. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of your playbook elements, obviously, is the, you know, the, the link, well, technology and business fluidity. Um, I suppose product management is essentially, that's exactly, that's exactly what it is, is actually bringing fluidity between and, and harmony between those two, two, two very functions, right? It's, it, it, would you kind of agree? A hundred percent. And, you know, part of this, again, influenced early in my career, I, you know, one of the things David Acheria, you know, our CEO said back at Blade Logic and is still an important approach that he, you know, he pushes at MongoDB is your go-to-market engine, whether it be, you know, a single channel sort of model like at Blade Logic or a multi-channel, omni-channel distribution model we have at, at MongoDB, that is as important to the company's IP as the core tech. And, you know, and even to the point of which we want to build a go-to-market organization that could still win, even if the product wasn't the best product in the market. And, you know, we're lucky that if you have the best product and the, the most diverse, you know, differentiated go-to-market strategy, you have the best of both worlds. And I firmly believe, like, obviously, we've done that at Mongo, we did it at Blade Logic, but 
that really has stuck with me as sort of a guiding pillar about how I, you know, we approach product management at MongoDB because when you build a capability or a feature, if you don't think about exactly which, you know, if you have a multi-channel, you know, strategy like Mongo, where it fits and what needs to change either about the go-to-market or either about the product to fit the go-to-market in a cohesive way, you'll ultimately fail. You could have the best product in the world for enterprise and try to sell it to a tiny company and it's not going to work, you know, as a very simple example, which is kind of in many ways uh, where we were. Or on the flip side, you could have a great product that's beautiful and self-service that somebody can get started for $50 a month or 15 bucks on or whatever it is, but that doesn't scale up to something that, you know, a large enterprise or bank would use. And so, whether that's pricing and packaging or feature development or any aspect of it, those two things have to connect. And if we do that right, then you can build a much bigger business ultimately because you have a diverse distribution strategy combined with a product that's products that fit those different layers. But it has to be very thoughtful and very, um, I think, uh, deliberate. You know, I think this idea of you just build it and then like, okay, let the go-to-market teams figure out exactly what has to happen to sell this doesn't work. You know, product has to be connected with the go-to-market leadership in designing that end-to-end. Great. So um, I suppose in terms of advice for, you know, our listeners, perhaps that are thinking about kind of their career trajectory, what kind of advice would you give them, you know, the most ambitious um, of our listeners that are really trying to scale, what advice would you give them um, based on your experiences? Yeah, I think, uh, I think hopefully some of it came across here. One, I think being thoughtful about where you want your career to be in the long term. You know, I was lucky because of mentors and, that I was able to realize like what my strength was relatively early in my career. And I, in, in sort of like put emphasis and energy into, you know, making that stronger. So in, you know, in the case of me, it's the combination of business and technical and sort of what that means in pre-sales or what that means now in product, I think, and you know, say so thinking about, okay, what, what can, where can I, if I wanted this job in five years, do I have the skill sets to ultimately do that? Do I enjoy doing that? <laughs> or am I sort of faking it? Now, those things have to align. And again, that, has, that takes some thought. You got to step back and be a little bit introspective and self-aware and, you know, really uh, get ahead of that. So I think that's one. The second is, and I've been really lucky, my career has been defined by the relationships I built early on, you know, and um, so, you know, people really matter. <laughs> and so, you know, surrounding yourself constantly with people that you think you are learning from and that you respect and are smarter than you, like this is not a, any rocket science. I'm sure others probably have said this. That's like mm-hmm. crucial. If you feel like you're the smartest person in the room, you're either wrong or you're, you're, you know, you're not moving the ball forward in terms of your own skills. And so I think those are kind of foundational elements uh, for sure. The other I would say is I, Sometimes talk to uh, to folks who are like, the, you know, I'll only work at like a hyper growth startup and whatnot. And I will say I learned as much and had as much fun post acquisition in some of those big companies we talked about, like BMC and VMware, as as I did, you know, at Blade Logic or at you know the short stint at Dynamic Ops or whatnot as well. And frankly, if it weren't for this, what are the learnings at those larger companies? I don't think I'd be able to do my job as effectively now at MongoDB, which is, you know, a 2,500 person company, even though we were probably 500 people when I joined. Mm. And so 
I just be open-minded about the fact that, you know, you can have a really impactful job and at the same time learn a ton at companies that on paper on the surface look very, very different. Yeah. Amazing. That's really interesting. So a final question for this, uh, for, for the pre-sale series that we always ask our guests is what technology area or area of innovation do you think is going to have the biggest impact on business over the next decade or so? Ah, I'm not, uh, I will not credit myself with being a futurist or anything like that. So I will, <laughs> I don't think this is like going to be super insightful, but I do love to travel. And I, you know, I'm really hopeful that if, you know, a year from now or, uh, you know, the world's in a different place in that sense. Yeah. But one thing I would love to see is supersonic travel coming back. And, you know, the Concord, you know, went by the wayside years ago. I was, you know, <laughs> uh, certainly wasn't able to have that experience. I travel a lot, both personally and for work. And there are some articles floating around in the last year or so or two about startups trying to pick that, you know, sort of torch back up and try to bring supersonic commercial flight back. Whether it will happen in the next five to 10 years, who knows, the business model will work and the economics will work. But uh, I would love to see that happen. The idea of shooting over to London in three hours would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, for, for the moment, we have Zoom. <laughs> yeah, it's like a lot of Zoom, a whole lot of Zoom. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, so here, um, it, it's, I think this is a good time to kind of reflect on what we've heard um, today. Um, and I think it has been a really thought-provoking, eye-opening uh, conversation today. And, and I think what's, what's most interesting, the things that I take most from the conversation we've had today is that your link between technology and business is a kind of a similar mindset to how you've been able to position your career in the sense that you're always trying to understand where you want to get to, but also the impact and the business value that you can have. And, and, and your kind of continued trajectory is not by kind of standing still it's always about evaluating what's next where can i have the biggest impact how can i align myself and making very very specific calculated decisions to really help you scale to um scale your career and, and kind of elevate yourself to the level that you uh, that you've obviously reached and we've seen and the outcome of, of that luck and circumstance thrown in there just to be clear <laughs> and a lot of help from other people <laughs> But, but the outcome of that, uh, Sahir, is obviously you've come from, you know, no pre-sales experience into pre-sales, into product, into a chief role. And we've just seen an incredible trajectory. And we've really enjoyed having you on the show. We've really enjoyed um, listening to your journey and your story. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. No yeah, it's been incredibly so insightful, Sahir. Thank you, Patrick. I, I really had fun. It was good to relive some of the old stories. Wonderful. Well, for our listeners today, I just want to say a big, big uh, thank you for listening um, to us today and, and joining us. And uh, if you've enjoyed what you've seen or what you've heard, please make sure that you do subscribe. Please do comment, share, like, and uh, please do get in touch. For more information, please do check out our website, so muchsoap.com forward slash blog, and uh, stay tuned for more. <laughs>